0: Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. It's brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a group of universities, companies, non-governmental organizations and community groups all committed to improving the lives of people around the world. Well, it is my deep, deep honor to welcome to this particular episode one of my political sheroes congresswoman barbara lee she's the representative of district 13 in california that's the east bay and it includes oakland and she's the co-chair of the house democratic steering and policy committee congresswoman lee welcome to a shot in the arm podcast
1: happy to be with you ben good seeing you oh it's so good
0: to see you and uh very pleased to see where are you in washington dc at the moment
1: yes i'm in washington dc so this is uh Right on time for me, a shot in the arm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are interesting times, Um, many challenges. And and I guess where I wanted to start uh, with is perhaps the most important challenge underpinning all of them, actually. Uh, And it's racial justice as a threat to public health. And I know that this is an issue for you that really stems from birth. Well, no, in fact, from before birth, um, your mum in labor was refused admittance uh, to a hospital. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Sure. And uh, thanks so much for having me on, Ben. And and truly, the shot in the arm is is desperately needed right now. So I'm really happy to to see you and be with you. Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas a few years ago. And uh, my mother needed a C-section and went to the hospital, uh, like when it was due to have the C-section, but the hospital would not admit her because she was black. Now, mind you that, and this is the sordid history, the terrible uh, history of so many African-Americans in, in terms of uh, the abuse of, of black women. My great grandmother had been the uh, domestic worker for a house a household that was headed by an Irishman and she was raped repeatedly and so out of that unfortunate terrible uh rape came two children one of those children was my grandmother and so my grandmother looked like she was white and I'm sharing this with you because that's how my mother got into the hospital my grandmother had to tell the hospital people that was her daughter and uh, they looked and they kind of, my mother was very fair with, with green eyes, but they knew she wasn't all the way white. My grandmother looked all the way white because of the, the grapes. And, uh, and so this is part of our history in this country, which is just awful. Uh, so my mother got in because of my grandmother, but they left her and my mother describes it on a gurney in the hall and didn't come and attend to her. So you know, when you need a C-section, you have to get prepared for the C-section. Well, it got too late and she passed out. She went, you know, she was unconscious. I mean, it was really bad. And someone saw her and they pulled her in and, I, and she told me it was the emergency room, it wasn't the delivery room. And they didn't know what to do because it was too late for a C-section. And um, fortunately, one of the doctors tried to figure it out and said, okay, let's try this. And they actually uh, used forceps and pulled me out. That's how I was delivered. And I had a scar above my eye up until a few years ago. Mm. Oops. We're good. Excuse me. That is just uh, the story of how I got here. I almost didn't get here. Yeah. I almost wasn't able to breathe. And my mother almost died. And so what option do I have other than fight for global health, health care, women's health, reproductive health, as well as racial justice. Uh, so that's just kind of who I am. It's no big deal, <laughs> this is how I got here. So, so there barely. seems
0: to be some something happening now, something changing, whether it's in our Netflix binges. We had uh, The Watchman earlier this year that covered the uh, massacre at Tulsa. We've got another binge watching series called the uh, Umbrella Academy that's looking at racism in in Dallas, Texas. But it shows that the civil rights movement has brought forth some incredible, incredible American leaders. Leaders for more than just one generation. And I, I'm thinking of course of John Lewis who we we're just mourning. Um, and, and for me personally, Lewis is very important because of his support for gay marriage and we're coming up to one year's anniversary in just a couple of days. But, but who really inspired you and gave you the tools to, to to fight against the odd, uh, odds and become the, the sort of seminal political leader you are today?
1: Well, of course, it was my mother. Uh, my mother was phenomenal. Uh, she passed away a few years ago. And, and I tell you, this is the hardest thing, not having her with me. Uh, she was one of the first 12 students to integrate the University of Texas at El Paso. She was uh, the first African-American civilian woman at uh, Fort Bliss. Uh, she was the caregiver of my elderly grandfather. My mother raised three girls uh, and my dad was um, in the military away from um, town a lot, stationed abroad. And so she had to be the head of the household, taking care of her parents, her three girls and working. And sometimes she worked two or three jobs. And then she still went back to school and integrated the University of Texas at El Paso. And so my mother was very unassuming. And this is just, as a black woman, this is what you do. And so I grew up like this, knowing that, um, and I better not think that a boy was any better than a girl or or could achieve more than than I could. I mean, that was just not tolerated. She said that can't is not in the dictionary. She said, so never say can't. So it was my mother who gave me that, what I needed as a child. And then fast forward, um, you know, as an adult, experiences being a black woman (laughs) in America, you know, is very... um, You know It sets the stage for everything we do. Uh, i've worked with shirley chisholm And worked as a community worker with the black panther party Uh that worked for ron dellums a great hero and warrior and so i've been around people Uh, most recently with the honorable, uh, and i miss him so much john lewis uh, and so i've had I've been involved in movements for racial and social and economic justice, but also I've had such good role models and people who have shown me the way and who said, You better not say I can't. You better not give up. You better not get tired. <laughs> Remember how you got here, you barely didn't get here. So it's about living in service to others so that people don't have to go through with the stuff that I went through and that so many black people have gone through in this country.
0: Well, I I, I mean, all credit to you and your generation. I mean you know, 20 years ago, I was working at UNAIDS and we were really exploiting the opportunity of the awareness of the global AIDS response. And I remember being with Peter Piot and senior advisors and looking at who of the key congressional political figures we ought to be working with and who were already engaged on this um, you mentioned Ron Dellums, your name came up as well. So, you know, it's not just an impact that's in the United States, it's it's truly global. But then that sort of brings us to this moment, 2020 and the Black Lives Matter. Um, I mean, this has been around for a few years, but obviously the atrocious murder of of George Floyd has sort of electrified the world. And And, and I suppose my question to you is, how do we make this more than just a moment? How does this become a movement, to use your words, a movement of transformation?
1: I think it's already a, uh, a movement that's going to develop into a political movement and voter registration and getting out to vote this November. I think our young people are setting the stage for transformational change, and we'll never go back. You know, given. COVID-19 and the, the horrible conditions we have to live under now to just save our lives and the lives of our family and friends and community, uh, black people can't go back to where we were before. Uh, we have to have a country now that's going to recognize that uh, health disparities uh, based on race exist. And because and health, it's because of the healthcare system and systemic racism, you see so many African-Americans and, and Latinx, individuals dying of the virus disproportionately so it's systemic racism that is being manifested now and and so we just have to keep at it and i think that this movement of young people is not going to go back they've said enough is enough and i'm really delighted and happy because i see what i see in them uh i saw in me and i am supporting them our dreamers our, our movement for black lives and everybody else out there in the street because they're building a multiracial, broad-based coalition, and they're gonna hold their elected officials accountable or they're gonna defeat them, and that's what has to happen.
0: And, and and it's not just elected officials. I mean, it's right across the board. I mean, in the AIDS movement, we've had some, some serious, um, uh, heart-wrenching moments of having to consider the racism inside our own movement. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Ace Robinson, a leading African-American AIDS activist, who we're going to partner on this, get a group to get, group together of, of uh, white AIDS movement leaders just to consider how we have behaved and how we haven't perhaps done the things that we should have done. And, and I suppose it gets to a question, and I find this really hard to ask you because it seems so trite and trivial, but what should white people who consider themselves allies, what should we be doing to support Black Lives Matter now.
1: Sure, yeah, and thanks for being candid, Ben. And and I'm asked this question all the time, and and I can tell you, it's like a rude awakening. Like Black people have been in this country uh, as as enslaved people uh, 401 years, and we've never dealt with with the the ramifications and the general imp- the generational impact of slavery. And so there are two bills that you all should really. Is just support at the national level one is my bill calling for a truth racial healing and transformation commission over 40 countries have had those to, to have a, a, a sort of a, a moment where the truth be told about how We got to this point as it relates to african-americans one is uh, of course uh, Slavery lasted over 200 and some years then you have uh, All of the black codes you have segregation you have lynching I mean, in California, fair housing, a law wasn't passed until 64. So you have the huge wealth gap, you have uh, all of the the ramifications and vestiges of the Middle Passage. So you got to support a truth telling moment in this country, put the history in historical context, so people will understand how we got to seeing so many black people being dead mm. and killed by COVID-19. There's a direct connection. And then you go into the a a discussion, a national discussion of healing, how you move forward and then transformation. And the transformational phase, you gotta support reparations, HR 40. And so there's some issues that you all can do right now at the uh, congressional level to support this. And we're talking about reparation not as a guilt thing for individuals, but this was a system of government that denied African-Americans the opportunity to be uh, equal. And we're seeing that today. And so white people have got to drill down a little bit and understand and not be patronizing and say, we're gonna support you know, uh, repairing the damage and uh, we're gonna support our young people in the streets and we're gonna support what the black community and, and communities of color believe are mo- in their best interest and look at structural racism. And I know what you're talking about in terms of HIV and AIDS. Listen, uh, on the Minority AIDS Initiative, for example, who got a lot of the money it was white groups because they had the infrastructure in america to get the money from the minority aids uh, fund that myself and maxine waters established and no one would say these people are racist but it was the structure it was because the technical assistance and the infrastructure in black groups hadn't been put together because of systemic racism so there are all kinds of, of um ways to, and manifestations of racism that I think you need to uh, and white people need to drill down on in terms of decisions they make and in terms of funding priorities and in terms of really understanding. Um, look at the tech sector, for example, two to five percent African-Americans who work in the tech sector. That's outrageous. But the cultural issues there, you have young white guys who hire their friends, yeah. who know people from Harvard or who know people. OK, but and you would not call them racist they don't even understand that they they built they built a culture where you have prevented african americans from entering and so the all of the subtle ways of uh, of understanding what racism and systemic racism is is a dialogue that i think white people need to have
0: well i appreciate that and that is certainly something that we will um, aggressively pursue through this and through, through you know, other partnerships that you know I'm involved in. C- can we turn to COVID-19 now? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the threat, the disproportionate threat that it is posing to people of color. You know, our friend TJ Cox, uh, the congressman, congressman in the Central Valley, uh, you know, 79% of the people are, who've been infected with COVID-19 are Latinx. And this in his constituency that is made up of about 50%. So it's really disproportionately affecting it. It's happening here in the Bay Area, particularly in, um, in Alameda County. And, and, and I suppose my question to you is, why have we failed? Why has the greatest country in the world failed at the uh, spread of the, the sort of second or third 21st century pandemic pandemic?
1: we failed because of white supremacy. That's as simple as that. When you look at uh, the, the uh, immigrant community and when you look at the working conditions, when you look at the lack of access to health care, when you look at the wage gap, when you look at who essential workers are and who are forced to work without their protective equipment and low-wage workers, this is... These are manifestations of white supremacy and people don't understand that and that is why so you got to tell the truth ben you know you got to be on it and and call it for what it is and until we deal with the systemic issues and it's outrageous what's the what's happening with the latinx community and not being able to even put our immigrant community uh in the appropriations bills that we're trying to pass because of right-wing white supremacist attitudes and so, yeah, that's what it is. So don't don't tinker around the edges with this and call this tell the truth.
0: Tell the truth. Well, our public health uh, infrastructure has just not been up to it at all. I mean, in the early days, a group of activists and I was part of them were 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 scouring the world to find masks and PPE and to bring them here. Um, and actually, and I got involved in an initiative with the uh, the governor of Guam, uh, Governor Leon Guerrero to get supplies over to, to the territory, and, and whether it's territories or it's reservations, we have failed. Um, and and I, I know there's a figure that sits in the White House that we would automatically look at as a, as a, a symbol of that, that failure. Um, but I, I, I guess there's also a question, I think, about looking at the global impact of COVID. And, you know, again, we see a crisis. We see a crisis in South Africa. Um, We've relied on the Global Fund, which was set up to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Um, It's running out of hot air, or it's running on hot air with perhaps a bit of German money keeping it afloat. Um, In these new um, negotiations, uh, do you, and you've already said that you support uh, the additional uh, allocation of 20 billion to support right now the response. Do you think we're going to have a chance to get it in there? Do you think, you know, the bipartisan support for global health will will ride through this?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben, it's a heavy lift, but we're fighting really hard. I think we put in 10 million, uh, but we got to get to 20 million. And, you know, the whole deal with regard to global health is is most um, Republicans don't really support it because they think that um, less than one percent of our our Budget uh, Is enough for global initiatives and development initiatives? So here you add a little bit more to a fund to address the pandemic and and they go ballistic and and they In many ways try to say well, you're taking money away from our domestic needs, which is totally false We have plenty of resources to address the global pandemic and it's so, so important because you know we've over the years learning the lessons from the HIV AIDS pandemic we've actually built up in many countries the the health infrastructure that could really be useful right now in addressing COVID-19. And so, you know, in in many ways, uh, we have a built-in sort of system that in some areas here we don't even have. Well, that's right. You know, to really begin to to help. And so we need to build upon what we learn, and we get a, a larger bang for our buck. Uh, when you do it the right way, and twenty million is not enough. No, really, that's no. that's just a drop in the bucket when you're dealing with the world, and when you're dealing with. I mean, you look at what's happening in Brazil. You look where where a Trump-like president is. You look at what's happening, you know, all around the world, and you're seeing some terrible things happen. Where now we could backslide, countries that were moving ahead on global health and poverty elimination, and uh, you know all of the issues you so. Long have been dealing with, now um, they're backsliding. So we have a moral obligation, I think, to step up and do so.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, one thing that really worries me, Congresswoman, is the vaccine preparedness. And this is a prime example of America first, where, you know, the government is buying advanced commitments, huge numbers of vaccines, but we need solidarity. There is no point vaccinating Americans if Africans and South Africans in particular who are being hit hard, if they don't have them. So we really need to, uh, and I guess I'd look to your advice on how we can keep that sense of solidarity going here.
1: Well, I think it's going to be up to you and outside organizations and keeping members of Congress accountable and especially Republicans, You know, making sure they know that, I mean, elections have consequences. We have November coming up. So we can't have this discussion without a political framework. And uh, because this is about numbers in in the House and in the Senate, either you vote for it or you don't vote for it. And how do you vote for it? If your constituents demand you vote for it. Otherwise, you get away with it. And so add that to the discussion in terms of the political dynamics about how to how to do this, because uh, when it comes to vaccine, you know, we have to be concerned also about low income people in this country, black and brown people getting access to the vaccines, uh, Native Americans, people who live uh, on reservations, are they going to have equal access to the vaccines? So, equity in this new new development, as we move forward and trying to find a vaccine, has got to be central to any company's uh, proposal to this government or any government, uh, you know, decisions on the vaccine distribution once once we have one.
0: Equity everywhere. Now, I know we're running out of time, but I wonder if I could just put two more questions to you, if that's okay. Uh You are wearing a red ribbon, and I am so proud of you. I wanted Ah. to talk about HIV and AIDS. So we were going to have uh, the International AIDS Conference, AIDS 2020, in the Bay Area this year. Of course, it went viral because of AIDS 2020. But you had specifically requested this conference as a way of shining a light on the challenges, particularly of the East Bay, the challenges, but also the creativity of the community there. What would you say to our viewers? What did they miss? What would they sh- should they really be aware of?
1: Well, I think, uh, and thanks for that, because we fought hard. First of all, it was my legislation that helped lift the ban so we could have international AIDS conferences here. Remember, for years, 20 years, uh, because of the travel ban, we couldn't even do it. And and I had to work hard within the Bush administration. We put that lifting the ban in the reauthorization of PEPFAR. That's the only way we got that. (laughs) So there's a lot of history there. So I went to the International AIDS Committee and of course, they wanted to do it the first time in my district, but we didn't have the hotel space and there were other issues So they did it in Washington DC, which was fine but I said look next time we have to do it in the Bay Area and they did and the um, the fact that we had it in Oakland and San Francisco was extremely important because we have some um, Activists in my district who have done marvelous work with little resources. And we have, and in 98, I had to help the County Board of Supervisors. I led the effort to declare a state of emergency in the black community. So you still have these huge gaps in terms of care, prevention, treatment, prep access, you know, the healthcare access in the East Bay. Uh, and San Francisco uh, has, has uh, in many ways been a shining example of how you do this right. Uh, but when you look at the population in San Francisco, you have very few African Americans yeah. left, uh, and so we wanted to see the best practices and how the the uh, San Francisco community uh, addressed this. So it was a perfect time to do this because in my district, the the characteristics of the pandemic uh, epidemic is similar to in sub-Saharan Africa and throughout the world in the developing world. So um, we have more in common with people in the world than we do uh, with others, and yeah. so wanted to have it there. And so Speaker Pelosi and I, we wanted it there. But I tell you one thing, when it went viral as a result of COVID, I think the silver lining we found was that we were able to connect with so many people around the world who wouldn't have been able to travel, wouldn't have been able to afford it, and wouldn't have been able to benefit from the wonderful uh, best practices and the wonderful interaction with, with activists in my district, as well as in San Francisco. And I think Overall, uh, and thank you, Ben, for all of your help with this, because uh, you were right in there pushing to make sure this was the right, how it happened was the correct way to uh, present it to the world. And I think it was a very huge success. And so this was a way, and the Black community say, making a way out of no way. uh, (laughs) This is what we did. And it was very, very helpful. It was very powerful. And so I've got to tell the IAS, though, the next one has got to come back to the Bay Area. So anybody listening in? from the IAS, just know I'm going to be on you about that because we want to have the rest of the world in our area.
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, during this period, some extraordinary creativity, particularly with digital and social media, an organization, you and I are both involved in, CALPEP, the California Prostitutes Education uh, Project. They were out and about, and one of their case managers was actually on our show a couple of weeks ago, Live streaming, showing people where food banks were, where they could get tested, uh, telling people where to go, where they could get showers and COVID testing, and all sorts of support. It was to me, it was really inspiring. Um, Okay, last question: Um, What do you make of the decision to withdraw from the WHO?
1: do not make any sense. as stupid, and as a reflection of how this administration performs on the world stage. I mean, you know, they're 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 bad, uh, and so I'm on the subcommittee that funds the WHO, and of course we we did that, we put the money in. We said we do not want us to defund our contribution, and, uh, and so we're fighting that. I mean, we need to be part of the WHO, and if they're issues that need to be addressed, then let's address them. But you don't pull out in the middle of a global pandemic. How irresponsible that is, how deadly that is. And uh, and so hopefully after November, we'll have new policies, a new administration and new leadership who gets it. And uh, we, as a member of the Democratic Party Platform Committee, uh, we made sure the platform reflected our support for the WHO.
0: So... As we wrap up, you know, you've, I've known you for a decade. You are a unique force of personality. I hope you don't mind my saying that, mm-hmm. but you, you seem to have found an even deeper enthusiasm during the period of lockdown. Your uh, uh, live streams, your engagement with young people, your engagement with you know, the new generation of um, congressional leaders, people of color. Um, what drives your optimism?
1: It's the young people. I mean, you know, it's like, finally, I have a lot of allies. (laughs) You know, being like a Black woman progressive as an elected official can get sort of, I won't say lonely, but you're kind of there, you know, with your other allies and colleagues. But to have younger people now pushing the envelope on, on issues such as repealing the Helms Amendment, repealing the Hyde Amendment that uh, I didn't get traction from until recently. And it's because of the push. So it's really important for those of us who've been in Congress to work with in an intergenerational way with our younger members and our newer members, because they really do hold it up for us and they lead on so many issues. And during uh, shelter in place, I mean, I have, you know, well, Ben, you know me, I'm always uh, everywhere in my district running around everywhere. As so I had said, wait a minute. Now we got to take this opportunity to be creative and expand places I couldn't run to within 24 hours. Because I mean, when I hit the ground running, when I hit the ground in California, I'm running, running, running until I get on that plane to come back to D.C. to run, run, run. So we took this time to try to, you know, help people to be hopeful for the future and to encourage them. And whoever is listening and watching, wear masks, do your six foot. Uh, physical distancing follow all the uh, sanitation uh and hand, hand sanitizers and washing your hand do what the health protocols require so we can get out of this and so I'm preaching that everywhere I go on every you know yeah. taking that opportunity too cuz people are a little too lax if you ask me and we need to shore up
0: yeah. that <laughs> totally well, well, look, uh, I've taken up enough of your time. You are doing the Lord's work right now, literally in Washington. It's a historical moment. Congresswoman, thank you so much for coming on to a shot in the arm. I know. Well, Ben,
1: thank you. Thank you for your you. voice, for your support and everything you're doing, because you're out there doing the work on the front line, making sure that we keep it all together. And I couldn't do it without you. So great seeing you.
0: Great seeing you. Well... That's it for this episode of a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks to Erica Sperra, our director, our producer. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us. You know where we are at Shot Arm Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great week and a safe week. And of course, don't forget to wear your mask.